You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Leaving Carlisle on Tuesday, the last day of June, we marched swiftly southward. Cherries were ripe along the rock-walled lanes. Bringing camp hatchets out, fruit-laden limbs were severed, and we regaled ourselves as we swung onward. The spirit and morale of the army were then superb. Sounds of strenuous battle reached us early on the morning of Wednesday, July 1st, as we pressed forward towards Gettysburg. Our brigade, Iversons, led Yule's Corps and was the first to become engaged as we hurried to aid A.P. Hill, then hard-pressed. Approaching from the north till within about a mile of the field of battle, we were filed off by the right flank to the Mummersburg Road. As we emerged from the woods and moved down the slope to the latter road, twenty pieces of artillery opened on us with grape from the left, inflicting some loss. Along the path, or eastern side of the field, and on a ridge, ran a stone fence, which formed part of the enemy's line. Behind this fence lay, hidden from view, more men than our assaulting column contained. The brigade advanced under artillery fire through the open grass field in gallant style, as evenly as if on parade. But our brigade commander, Iverson, after ordering us forward, did not follow us in that advance, and our alignment soon became false. There seems to have been utter ignorance of the force crouching behind the stone wall. For our brigade to have assailed such a stronghold, thus held, would have been a desperate undertaking. To advance southeast against the enemy, visible in the woods at that corner of the field, exposing our left flank to an enfilading fire from the stronghold, was fatal, yet this is just what we did, and unwarned, unled as a brigade, went forward Iverson's deserted band to its doom. Deep and long must the desolate homes and orphan children of North Carolina rue the rashness of that hour. Sergeant H. C. Wall, 23rd North Carolina Infantry, Iverson's Brigade, Yule's Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 328 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. 
And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, the lull that had descended over the battlefield after the morning's combat north and south of the Chambersburg Pike on the western outskirts of Gettysburg was over and the fighting was starting up once again as Rhodes' Confederates began their attack on the northern end of the Federal First Corps line. Major General Robert Rhodes' command was the largest division in the Army of Northern Virginia. With almost 8,000 men in its five brigades, it was the same size as one of the smaller Federal Corps. As we mentioned previously on the podcast, on July 1st, Rhodes' division approached Gettysburg from the north, marching down the Newville Road, accompanied by Corps Commander Dick Yule. About four miles north of Gettysburg, Yule and Rhodes heard the sound of heavy cannon fire coming from the south. Unfortunately for Dick Yule, he didn't have the advantage of having under his command a cavalryman as tough and effective as John Buford. So while Buford had kept his superiors constantly informed about the approach of Yule's Confederates, Yule himself had no information at all about what was going on at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st, except what the sound of cannon fire told him when he and Rhodes were within four miles of the town. This was the first hint that the two rebel officers had that major fighting was in progress. As Rhodes' division continued marching toward Gettysburg, he discovered that the road his troops were on ran parallel and quite close to a northern extension of Oak Ridge, north of Oak Hill. Rhodes realized that if he followed this ridge line southwest, it would take him directly toward the sound of the guns. And so, Rhodes deployed four of his five brigades off the road and onto the wooded ridge. After advancing about a mile along the ridge, Rhodes and Yule arrived on the summit of Oak Hill and surveyed the scene before them. Gazing southward, they could see their fellow Confederates from A.P. Hill's Corps over to the right on Hurst Ridge, where they had withdrawn after their ordeal in the Herbst Woodlot and at the railroad cut. But directly to Rhodes and Yule's front, positioned down the line of McPherson's Ridge, was the Federal First Corps. And Rhodes and Yule, both experienced officers, could tell they had arrived on the exposed right flank of the enemy line. After the thrashing of Archer's and Davis's brigades that morning, the god of battles now appeared to be smiling on the Confederacy. Dick Yule, having approached Gettysburg in almost total ignorance of the situation there, had stumbled blindly into a position where he could strike the enemy a terrible blow. Rhodes' division arriving on Oak Hill when it did simply couldn't have worked out any more perfectly if Yule had planned it that way. As you guys will recall, we said before on the podcast that earlier that morning, Yule had sent his stepson and aide, Major Campbell Brown, to find Robert E. Lee and inform the Confederate Army commander that he was marching Rhodes' division and Early's division of his corps to Gettysburg. This was the -the spur-of-the-moment decision Dick Yule had made after he'd received A.P. Hill's message the morning of July 1st 
informing Yule that Hill was sending Heath's and Pender's divisions to Gettysburg. At any rate, Brown found Lee just east of Cashtown and discovered the army commander to be noticeably out of sorts. Lee had first heard the sounds of battle as he rode with Longstreet over South Mountain sometime around 11 a.m. He hurried to Cashtown to confer with A.P. Hill and to find out exactly what was happening. However, Hill had to tell Lee that he simply didn't know, but that he would depart immediately for Gettysburg and see what was going on. After Little Powell rode off, Lee singled out Richard Anderson, who commanded Hill's 3rd Division, and asked whether he knew anything about the unfolding situation. Anderson replied in the negative, and then Lee, more to himself than to Anderson, as Anderson later recalled, said, quote, I cannot think what has become of Stuart. In the absence of any reports from him, I am in ignorance of what we have in front of us here. It may be the whole federal force, or it may be a detachment. If it is the whole federal force, we must fight a battle here. Lee's agitation was obviously caused by the fact that not only was there major combat going on at Gettysburg in violation of his standing orders not to bring on a battle until the entire rebel army was concentrated, but Lee was also plainly anxious that, absent any news from his cavalry chief, Jeb Stuart, he was now being forced to react to a rapidly unfolding situation without having any clear idea of what the enemy army was up to. It was just about this time that Campbell Brown arrived. Brown delivered his message that Yule was headed for Gettysburg. Robert E. Lee then asked Brown if Yule had heard anything of Stuart. When Brown answered no, Lee sent him back to Yule, having stressed the same instructions he had issued earlier to A.P. Hill, that is, Yule was to avoid a general engagement until Lee had the entire Confederate army concentrated. In Noah Andre Trudeau's book, Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage, he makes a point that we think is worthy of consideration. Trudeau contends that, quote, While Henry Heath is usually credited with initiating the Battle of Gettysburg, the distinction more properly belongs to Richard S. Yule. Trudeau points out that an argument can be made that Heath's assignment had been to probe aggressively toward Gettysburg to ascertain the size and composition of the enemy force in the town. And while he had made a bit of a hash of it, he had actually accomplished his mission and then pulled back, so that by midday on July 1st, Heath had reset and was awaiting further orders. Trudeau writes, quote, The decision of whether or not to escalate the combat at Gettysburg that day was made not by Henry Heath or even by Robert E. Lee. Instead, it rested on the shoulders of Richard Yule, who around midday was with Robert Rhodes under the cover of the woods on Oak Hill, looking southward. Yule had a decision to make. Rhodes was bringing four of his five brigades up to Oak Hill, while his fifth brigade, Brigadier General George Dole's all-Georgia outfit, came up on the left to cover the plain north of Gettysburg and screen the impending arrival of Jubal Early's division. 
Out in front of Dole's Georgians was a skirmish line of Alabama sharpshooters under Major Eugene Blackford. With that sector covered for the moment, the decision Yule had to make was whether to attack from Oak Hill with Rhodes' troops who were deploying there. Even as Rhodes' deployment was proceeding, Yule brought up Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Carter's artillery battalion. Carter's 16 guns opened fire from Oak Hill, shelling the Federal First Corps line, and whatever surprise an attack by Rhodes might have achieved was spoiled the instant the Confederate guns opened up. With Carter's guns announcing the arrival of rebel troops on Oak Hill, the Federal First Corps soldiers now found themselves caught in a vicious artillery crossfire from Hur's Ridge to their front, and from Oak Hill to their right. In the face of this shell fire, Cutler's men north of the Chambersburg Pike fell back to the cover of Sheed's Woods, while at the same time, Colonel Roy Stone, positioned just south of the road around the McPherson farm buildings, shifted two of his three regiments to a line along the pike, facing north. This shift reduced their exposure to the flanking fire from Carter's guns on Oak Hill but unfortunately exposed their left flank to the fire of the rebel guns on Hur's Ridge to the west. Realizing that the Confederate gunners were targeting his regiment's flags, Stone decided to use the colors of the 149th Pennsylvania as a decoy. He ordered the 149th's two flags to be carried forward to a pile of fence rails that had been stacked up earlier by Union cavalry pickets. From that spot, the flags would be visible to the rebel gunners on Hur's Ridge, but the wheat field would prevent them from discovering the entire regiment wasn't there. After Sergeant Henry Bream of the 149th Color Guard received his orders, he and five other men planted the national and state flags at the fence rails and hunkered down as best they could behind their cover. The trick worked the Confederates shifted their fire toward the flags, and Stone's men, except for the stalwart few with the 149th's colors, were relieved from much of the Confederate artillery fire. Once the Confederate artillery opened up from Oak Hill, Abner Doubleday, now leading the First Corps after John Reynolds' death, realized that the enemy had seized that key piece of high ground and Doubleday moved to counter that new threat. He sent word to Brigadier General John Robinson, whose division had been held back in reserve near the seminary, telling Robinson to send at least one of his brigades north of the Chambersburg Pike. Robinson, in turn, called on Brigadier General Henry Baxter, who quickly led his six regiments northward behind the crest of McPherson's Ridge and toward the right of Cutler's men in Sheed's Woods. Meanwhile, from their vantage point on Oak Hill, Dick Yule and Robert Rhodes watched with growing alarm as Baxter's men began emerging from the woodlot to their left front. By this time, also, Yule and Rhodes could see the blue-clad troops of the Federal 11th Corps coming out of the north side of Gettysburg and deploying on the open ground there, north of town. Yule and Rhodes could tell that, clearly, the situation was changing. 
but although the first corps line to their front had been extended, it didn't seem as if the just-arriving 11th Corps troops were tying into that line, so an opportunity still seemed to exist to smash the Federals on McPherson's Ridge. Ewell faced the moment of decision with Stonewall Jackson-like decisiveness. On the left, Rhodes' 5th Brigade, Dole's Georgians, would stiff-arm the just-arriving Federal 11th Corps there north of Gettysburg, thereby buying time for Jubal Early's division to hopefully arrive on the scene soon and deal with the enemy there properly. Meanwhile, from Rhodes' position at Oak Hill, one brigade would be held back in reserve, while Rhodes would use the other three to attack, to sweep forward from Oak Hill and smash the Federal First Corps line in front of them. By this time, Campbell Brown had returned to Dick Ewell's side after his meeting with Robert E. Lee and repeated Lee's instructions not to bring on a major fight. But Ewell believed that a battle was by now unavoidable. With the enemy First Corps line having been extended northward and with the 11th Corps troops deploying north of Gettysburg, Ewell thought his hand had been forced. As he later reported, quote, it was too late to avoid a general engagement without abandoning the position already taken up, and I determined to push the attack vigorously. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Rhodes hashed out a plan to attack south from Oak Hill with the brigades of Edward O'Neill, Alfred Iverson, and Junius Daniel. As we mentioned just a moment ago, Dole's brigade, operating on Rhodes' left, 
would keep the Federal 11th Corps occupied until Early's division arrived on the scene, while Rhodes' final brigade, under Stephen Ramser, would be held in reserve. Rhodes' plan was to come crashing down on the right of the 1st Corps line and roll up the enemy position from north to south. However, as John David Hoptak points out in his book, Confrontation at Gettysburg, Rhodes' plan would fall apart as, quote, poor communication, vague directives, uninspired leadership, and an imperfect understanding of the Union positions would all combine to result in a series of disjointed, costly assaults. Stepping off sometime between 2 o'clock and 2.30 that afternoon, O'Neill's brigade would be the first to come to grieve. For various reasons, Rhodes had detached two of O'Neill's regiments, while the remaining three moved out to the attack with nothing in the way of direction, since O'Neill decided to remain in the rear. The three Alabama regiments swept south across the eastern slopes of Oak Hill, past the McLean farm buildings, and directly into a storm of musket fire delivered at close range by Baxter's Federals lined up to their front. Moving north out of Sheed's Woods, Baxter just a few minutes earlier had formed his six regiments in the shape of a backward L, with the base, two regiments strong, lining up along Oak Ridge, which was just the northern extension of McPherson Ridge, and facing west, while the long end of the L, four regiments strong, deployed in a grove of oak trees and a line of battle that ran southeasterly and parallel to the Mumisburg Road, which cut across the ridge line. As O'Neill's Alabamans approached the Union position, they were greeted by a tremendous series of volleys that staggered them. To make matters worse, they were also taking fire on their exposed left from 11th Corps troops from the 45th New York, which was just then advancing a strong skirmish line. Cannon fire delivered by Captain Hubert Dilger's 11th Corps battery also raked O'Neill's lines. The rebel attack foundered after just 15 minutes, and dozens of Alabamans lay dead or wounded. Others had fallen prisoner to the men of the 45th New York. But having driven back O'Neill, Baxter's Federals would get little rest, because just minutes later, Iverson's brigade of North Carolinians came sweeping down toward their position on Oak Ridge. To confront Iverson, Robinson directed Baxter to reform his line along the crest of Oak Ridge, with all of his regiments now facing west. Baxter very quickly executed this change in position with his half-dozen Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania regiments now in a line behind a stone wall that stretched south along the eastern crest of Oak Ridge. Iverson's North Carolinians stepped off to the attack soon after O'Neill's men with orders to advance to the right of the Alabamans. However, because of the terrain, Iverson's men couldn't see O'Neill's advancing. In an effort to close up on O'Neill's right, they wheeled to the left, angling across the stretch of ground that rose gently up to form Oak Ridge. Baxter's Federals, situated behind that stone wall, 
patiently waited during the approach of Iverson's four regiments. The Yankees were entirely out of view of the unsuspecting North Carolinians, who, for some reason, were advancing without skirmishers to their front, which meant Iverson's men, in their perfectly aligned ranks, advanced totally, tragically oblivious to the fact that 1,400 Federals were concealed nearby. Baxter's men thought it odd that the Confederates marching in their parade ground lines weren't advancing directly toward them, but were instead moving as if to pass across their front, from north to south. Perhaps the rebels were making for Cutler's brigade's position in the woods several hundred yards to the south, but the fact remained the enemy was coming on and presenting their left flank to Baxter's men, who were crouched behind that stone wall. When Iverson's Confederates approached within a hundred yards of their position, Baxter's Federals rose up and delivered a devastating volley that dropped North Carolinians by the hundreds. Taken completely by surprise, those who survived that first murderous blast simply fell to the ground, doing their best to weather the leaden storm that had decimated their ranks. Once they went to ground, the survivors found they couldn't rise up, either to advance or retreat. One of the survivors later said, I believe every man who stood up was either killed or wounded. Iverson's men never had a chance. One of the Federals later recalled, quote, Done some wicked firing into the mass of Confederate soldiers lying down in the field within short musket range. End quote. And indeed, the North Carolinians simply hugged the ground while Baxter's Federals continued to pour in a deadly fire. It wasn't long, though, before the Yankees saw handkerchiefs and other pieces of cloth, even hats, being raised in surrender by the trapped rebels to their front. With bayonets fixed, Baxter's men surged up and over the stone wall and were very quickly out among the prone Confederates, hundreds of whom were taken prisoner and herded to the rear. The flags of the 20th and 23rd North Carolina were also captured. Instead of leading his men forward, as brigade commanders were expected to do, Iverson, like O'Neill, had remained in the rear and now watched in horror as his brigade was annihilated. Within a matter of minutes, he had lost nearly 800 of his 1,300 men. Watching from a safe distance, Albert Iverson became hysterical and sent a message to Rhodes saying that, quote, one of his regiments had raised the white flag and gone over to the enemy, end quote. Well, that wasn't the case, of course, and if he had been leading his troops, as was his duty, Iverson would have known the truth. The survivors had simply found that further attempts at resistance would have served no purpose other than getting the rest of them killed as well, so they had surrendered to Baxter's Federals. As Sergeant Wall, the regimental historian of the 23rd North Carolina, would phrase it, quote, unwarned, unled as a brigade, went forward Iverson's deserted band to its doom. The next day, Confederate artilleryman Henry Berkeley examined the spot of Iverson's disaster. He wrote in his diary, I saw a sight which was perfectly sickening and heart-rendering in the extreme. There were, by actual count, 
79 North Carolinians laying dead in a straight line. I stood on their right and looked down their line. It was perfectly dressed. Three had fallen to their front. The rest had fallen backward. Yet the feet of all these dead men were in a perfectly straight line. Great God. All of Iverson's regiments lost heavily here, but the losses in the 23rd North Carolina, closest to the federal line, were simply appalling. The 23rd lost 282 of its 316 men, including Colonel Daniel Christie, who fell mortally wounded, for a regimental loss of 89.2%. Many of the officers and men of the shattered brigade vowed they would never again serve under Iverson. When the Army of Northern Virginia retreated after Gettysburg, Iverson was given the post of temporary provost-marshal, which was a polite way of removing him from field command. In October of 1863, General Lee approved Iverson's transfer to Georgia, where he subsequently somewhat redeemed himself by leading Confederate cavalry opposing Sherman's march through Georgia and the Carolinas. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Rashness of That Hour, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson by Robert J. Winstra. In The Rashness of That Hour, Winstra offers a reassessment of Iverson's leadership, arguing that he wasn't solely to blame for the destruction of his brigade. Winstra notes that the brigade suffered from political and personal feuds among its officers that created a fractious command climate even before the bloody debacle at Gettysburg. At any rate, it's an interesting read. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then, as we wrap up this episode, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Ira, Timu, Philip, Tony, John, John Howe, Christopher, Gavin, and Lee. And thanks to John, Kyle, Curtis, and Max for their donations. Yeah, thanks everyone. We appreciate your support of the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.